This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. As CPAs, we're called more and more by our clients um, for discussions about not just tax, but what are the economic considerations of any type of investment? Now, it's not our job to give financial advice. However, I think it's a mistake if we don't understand the economics of any investment our client is getting into, especially those that have huge tax benefits. Because what happens is, is we tend to focus on the tax benefits. The clients get all excited about the tax benefits, but do they understand the risks and how the how the investment actually works? Today, we're going to talk about an investment that I would never have thought 30 years ago would be considered controversial, but today it is, and it's oil and gas. Uh, oil and gas uh, has been the driver of the economic engine of the world for over a hundred years. Now it's got all sorts of negatives being talked about as far as the climate and climate change. And do we go to electric vehicles? What do we do about climate change? So we're here to talk about really what we're going to see in oil and gas and the, the pros and the cons of oil and gas investing besides the tax consequences. We'll talk about that briefly, um, but I really want to focus on oil and gas as an investment because we have clients who are interested in this type of investment. And we have with us today a uh, leader in the oil and gas field uh, by the name of John Engel. John is with Gulf Coast Western, um, a very prominent um, oil and gas uh, drilling and development company. And John, it is great to have you with us today. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And John, if you would, just give us a little of your background. I know you're an, uh, an oil man here. Yeah, so I, uh, Gulf Coast Western, uh, to begin with, is a Dallas-based, we're headquartered in Dallas, uh, oil and gas exploration firm, uh, venture capital firm. We were formed in 1970. Uh, our specialty is we put together joint venture general partnerships with the uh the, the main goal is to go out and form a joint venture around a group of wells to drill those wells and place those wells into production and uh, receive the, the revenues that an oil well can generate uh, for our partners. Um, so right now, oil's in the news. It's in the news negatively and positively. And uh, if you could tell us uh, just right this minute, Okay, so oil's been up over 100 in the last couple of years, and it's down hovering around 75 right now. So uh, one of the big challenges, of course, one of the big risks with oil, unlike, mm, say, uh, real estate where uh, rent rents don't tend to fluctuate wildly within a short period of time, oil and gas, sometimes the price does fluctuate pretty wildly. So can you tell us kind of the state of the oil industry right now? Yeah, absolutely. It it certainly can. And and to your point, you know, just a few years ago, we saw it dip down to negative $38, which none of us ever could have seen coming. Uh, it was purely a uh, an options play and, and a contracts expiration deal that happened on that day. It was for one day, but it was not fun to watch and not fun to be a part of. 
At the same time, we've seen it go up to, you know, upwards of $125 recently. So yes, the fluctuations are there. Uh, oil is the most com the most important commodity on the planet. Uh, there are over 6,000 uh, 6, products made from oil and gas. And, uh, you know, we use it on a daily basis. Um, so, yeah, but that being said, everything is supply and demand driven. When COVID hit, uh, supply was there and demand stopped. And that's where we saw those th negative $38 prices. Um, now we've got, uh, at the same time, you had OPEC trying to basically price out the the shale drillers in, in America, basically tried to put them out of business and almost succeeded. But what they what they realized, what the shale companies realized was we better get real efficient and real fast. And so they did. They went through a huge uh, downsizing of their corporations and their drilling operations. But they maintained and kept their key personnel, their top, you know, their cream of the crop personnel they kept. And so they figured out really quick how to get very efficient in the shale drilling at the same time. Saudi Aramco went public and they need probably in the, in the range of a $90 price target. Mm -hmm. So now we're working with the Saudi Aramco and OPEC trying to, you know, keep oil prices elevated where before they were trying to price out the American oil industry. So now the American oil industry is highly efficient. They have not rushed out and, and increased their drilling, op you know, their drilling operations just because oil prices went up to $95. You saw a small uptick in drilling operations, but they didn't just go full bore because they've run into that problem before and they're not going to be caught with their pants down again. So what's going on? Um, we, we know that OPEC keeps talking about reducing the amount they drill. And we have Russia who's funding a war. Um, with their their drilling, we have China in desperate need, but their economy is uh, seems to be faltering. So, what do you see over the next six months? Let's let's take a short term time horizon. What do you see over the next six months with oil demand and oil supply? Well, that's a good question. I think overall we're going to see it kind of hover in this this seventy to ninety dollar range. Um, you have. For every big brokerage house that that calls for it to be $105, there's probably just as many that call for $65. So it's it again, it's supply and demand. Everything is so news driven right now. If there's a positive news article, the oil prices shoot up. If there's a negative, China's demand goes down, you'll see prices drop, you know, three, four, five dollars in a day. Um, and and what I tell my partners is look, it's going to fluctuate. But it's probably going to be considering it's been down to 65 and it's been up to 95. I'm comfortable with it being in the $75 range for quite some time. Um, if it goes up over 100, great. But I don't count on it being above 100 and, and sustaining that level. At the same time, when it drops down below 70, I'm not overly concerned because one thing is certain on oil prices, they're going to change. And, you know, today China might be having... Uh, a a you know negative you know uh, they might have crude oil in, oil inventories building because their their economy or their they're going through a pandemic or a flu outbreak any one of those things sure it can it can in, impact the oil prices but it's not going to stay at that level one thing is certain here 
the world population is growing. It has grown exponentially over the last you know, hundred years. And it's it may be slowing down, but it is always increasing. And all of those people, and you're talking about a lot of undeveloped countries that are just now getting to that, to being able to be developed. And there's a lot of countries that have a lot of oil that they're starting to discover. So those countries are going to start using it as well. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And one other point I think everybody needs to understand, you, you alluded to the negative connotation that oil has. Everyone needs to understand that the oil and gas was put in the ground by Mother Nature millions and millions of years ago. It is a naturally occurring substance. It is trying to get to the surface. And in some places in the world, it just oozes right out of the ground naturally. Where Pennzoil was formed because in a place called Oil Creek, Pennsylvania, the oil flowed directly into a stream. And you know, if you want to, if the greenies, I call them greenies, there's nothing wrong with wanting clean air and clean water. But when you look at what we used to do, we used to we used to burn whale oil in lamps, you know, to light our homes. You know, so the whale population is doing great because of oil and gas. And again, there's six thousand products made from oil and gas. So let me ask you a question. So, so, so let me a question on this. Okay, so um, let's say uh, it says there are several states and even countries that their goal is to eliminate gas-powered vehicles. What percentage of oil consumption is gas is uh, gasoline-powered uh, vehicles or diesel-powered vehicles? Oh, I, I, I could I'd be making up a number if I if it gave you a percentage, but the overwhelming majority is is gas. And and you you touched on a key point there the the diesel operations. You know, America is fed by farmers who drive huge diesel pickups and diesel trucks and diesel tractors. And most of the fertilizer that is that is used to to fertilize those fields and feed America and the world comes from oil and gas and petroleum products. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. So if you if you were to cut off and just convert everything over to electric vehicles, that's that's fine. But you're still going to need oil and gas and it's not going to happen overnight. You cannot have an electric vehicle without oil and gas and petroleum products. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I guess that was my question is um uh, oil is used in over 6000 products. The product that most people are aware of of course is gasoline and diesel fuel and it's the one that seems to be the target of the green energy uh coalition. And uh you know and I'm a green energy fan by the way. I I I've got I've got to admit I I have solar on my house. I drive I drive uh, I have cars some electric some gas powered and um and I'm a big fan of cleaning up the environment. Um, that said, I I am I do wonder um, if, as predicted, um, California, other big states, and then you have uh, countries. Europe, Europe is really going heavily into the electric car. Uh, that they are really pushing heavy on that. You see that on every street corner. Every there are billboards all over the place. I was there just last month. And if you take all those electric, uh, sorry, all, all those gas-powered vehicles out of the economy, um, do you have, a, have have you looked at this? What kind of a percentage drop in demand would that cause? 
Oh, it would be significant. Um, probably forty okay. percent. Um, okay. Because just using just using basic uh, the basic math of a barrel of oil, a barrel of oil is forty two gallons. Forty percent of it goes to making gasoline. Sixty percent of it goes to making everything else we use on a daily basis. So, okay, there would be and and to that point, I'm I'm all for green energy. I'm I'm one of the biggest proponents of nuclear energy you'll ever find because that is the most efficient way to power our cities. And in so doing, California can switch today to all electric cars because they do silly mandates like that. But at the same time, they're telling people turn off your AC because we can't power everyone. So if you're going to convert to an all electric vehicle world, you better get used to being friendly with nuclear energy. And and here's why. Don't put it in a, in a you know, on the San Andreas Fault. Don't put it in a in a tsunami zone. Put it in Nebraska or somewhere where there's there's very little in the way of, of natural disasters and you can power the world with nuclear energy. We can put it on submarines and we can put it on aircraft carriers, which are floating targets for all of our adversaries, but we can't power our cities with it. Um, I think that's just silly. Um, but yes, you're going to have oil and gas even after long after everything is converted to, to electric. Right. It's interesting, though. So it does sound like e eventually we we will see a lower demand um, for oil. I mean, the, the reality is, is that the governments are putting trillions of dollars into uh, the production of electric vehicles. Um, certainly hybrid vehicles have had a huge impact on the use of oil. I'm a huge fan of hybrid vehicles getting 50, 60 miles to the gallon instead of 20. Um, I think that's a huge improvement. Um, to our cities, particularly, you know, the, that's what the, what we see. Um, so given that, it, it's, it sounds to me it's really about a timeline. So it's right now, oil's in high demand. In 10, 15 years from now, it may be in lower demand. So it seems to me like um, you, you do have to always look at what the market is at any, any one time. And again, the reason we're talking about this on the CPA show is because our clients are interested in this and they tend to get interested because of the tax benefits, which we, we have probably ought to cover um, pretty quick here because um, the tax benefits are significant and they have been significant for many, many, many years. Um, they have, uh, uh, <laughs> we have presidents that have had the elimination of those tax benefits in their budgets every single year. Uh, President Obama did for eight years. Uh, President Biden has um, for his every budget he's proposed has proposed eliminating those tax benefits, and yet they remain um, and remain a part, frankly, of of our economic existence. So um, let's talk about. But this is why we're talking about oil and gas. Let's talk about the tax benefits real quick. Um, and what I want to explain is, I, John, I'll I'll talk about what the tax benefit is, but I want you to explain what the terminology means. Okay. okay. So the big tax benefit in oil and gas is intangible drilling costs. Can you, um, and intangible drilling costs basically are hundred percent deductible. Um, and they're deductible even before you spend the money, which is a really interesting concept as long as you spend it within a certain period of time. So let's start with, um, explain what are intangible drilling costs. So intangible drilling costs are exactly that. They're intangible, meaning there's not, it's all of the activities involved in drilling an oil well, 
placing an oil well into production, doing what needs to be done to place that well into production. Uh, so those those are all of the intangibles, and it 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 is it is by and far the most expensive part of drilling an oil well. Uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to an oil well uh, or oil wells as they're drilling them now, they literally come out and they build a small city around a bunch of holes in the ground. And they stay there until the wells are in production and then they move everything off. It, it is a tremendous undertaking from the first bulldozer showing up and, and starting to, to clear the path. Um, all of those things go into your intangible drilling costs. And as a as a participant in an oil and gas project, a working interest participant, you are, as you are aware, able to write off the majority of those costs in the year that those that those uh, costs are incurred. Right. So these are costs that it, under normal accounting rules and tax rules would be capitalized. And what we're doing is we're deducting what percentage. So if if it takes, let's say you had a I know this is a small one, but let's say you had a $10 million uh, oil well. What percentage of those costs would be um, intangible drilling costs? Oh, I'd say approximately 75 to 80% of it. Okay. And I mentioned that uh, we have this <laughs> we have this odd rule where we can actually deduct it. Um, we can deduct the oil and um, the intangible drilling costs even before they're actually incurred. Um, can you explain that rule? Because this is this is why we always see oil uh, projects, you know, they get promoted in November, December, because as long as they they drill by a certain period in the next year, you still get the, the intangible drilling costs this year. Can right. you kind of walk so, us through that? Yes. Yeah. So uh, on a project, uh, let's say we put together a project where the oil wells, like you're just mentioning, in December, I put together a project. So long as activity starts toward the drilling of those wells by March 31st of the following year, those, those, it, the, the tax advantages are locked in on the intangible drilling costs. Um, so, I mean, and that can be a bulldozer showing up and putting in a culvert. Uh, activity has started. So that's, that's the key. And I really, that's probably, that's one of my biggest job duties is when I put together a project is to make sure that I'm putting together a project where activity is slated to start drilling before March 31st, or at least some activity to take place so that our partners' uh, tax advantages are protected. Great. Okay. So we have the, what's interesting is we, we have this, let's say it's 80%, but the rest of it is, for the most part, most of it's equipment, correct? Right. And that equipment would be subject to bonus depreciation. Correct. So in, for example, in 2023, that would be 80% of the remainder. Of course, we don't get that until it's placed in service. So that's right. probably the next year, right? Yep. If it's a December project, it's probably the following year. But what that means is, is that there's a, a, a very large deduction as a percentage of the investment the first year. And, yet, and there's still another deduction in year two. Um, year three by year three hopefully by year two we're we're actually producing income and we actually have revenue coming out of the ground um but we also have of course a percentage depletion can you kind of walk us through what is percentage depletion yeah so so on an oil well because it is a, a naturally occurring substance and it is it is naturally going to be depleted over time uh there's only a finite amount of oil you can get out of every oil well so because of that 
the government gives you a depletion allowance, which is allows for 15% of the revenue generated from an oil well is tax-free. So it's tax-free income uh, over time, you know, but if a well generates a partner a million dollars over time, that's $150,000 in tax-free income. So it, it may seem like a small percentage, but over time it can work out to a, a lot of tax-free income depending on how big of a position a partner takes. You're listening to WealthAbility for CPAs, not just because Tom Wheelwright is entertaining, but to become a better strategic tax advisor. Attorney John Scabeland and his law firm, Scabeland PLLC, presents with Tom Wheelwright to accountants and works with tax advisors throughout the United States, implementing strategic tax plans that protect the client's assets. Take your expertise and client value to another level by working with John. Tax professionals rave about John's approach to asset protection. John enables your client to start small and increase the complexity of their plan as their assets grow. John will custom tailor a plan that is both affordable and effective. John Scabland is your asset protection attorney who will work with your tax strategy and within your client's budget. Go to ultimateassetprotection.com and schedule a time to meet with John. Right. Now, one of the um, questions I think uh, people have when they're investing in oil is you, you mentioned it. It's, it is depleting. So unlike uh, real estate, um, real estate doesn't tend to disappear, um, but the oil will eventually disappear. Um, and now we do primarily horizontal drilling, which uh, the other term for it, which is, uh, again, not popular in, uh, in, in the world right now is fracking. And that means that we get a lot more oil, but we also get a lot faster, correct? Yes, we get a, the way fracking works. And, and since we're talking about it, uh, fracking, all it is, it does have a negative connotation. Um, mainly due to a movie that was called Gasland, where they were, again, if you look back at the fact that oil and gas is a naturally occurring substance trying to get to the surface, in some areas, if you drill a water well and you have a gas reservoir that is shallow, you can tap into that gas reservoir and you may be able to light your your faucet on fire because it's generally wow. having gas bubbles in your in your water supply from your well, but it's a naturally occurring substance. When in the oil industry, the first thing they do when they drill the surface casing is they set it in concrete to protect the water table. So the that that is where fracking got started to get its bad rap. If if all fracking is, is it is injecting high pressure water and sand into an oil well to create micro fractures in the rock, which is typically in the case of a lot of our wells, seven to 10 or 15,000 feet below the surface of the earth. And it's not reaching out very far. And it's, you're maybe reaching, you know, 10, 15 feet max out into a, into a formation. So it is not, it, it is, all it's intended to do is, is create micro fractures so that the, the, the reservoir that is locked in tight rock is allowed to flow freely to the wellbore. The sand that's included in the, in the frac water is there to work like a uh, the timbers in a mine shaft. So they go in, it's injected at high water, the water pressure creates fractures in the rock. The sand, when the water is pulled off, holds those cracks open so that the water and the, and the gas can flow out of, out of the, uh, the reservoir. Um, are there chemicals involved? Absolutely, but most of the chemicals that are involved are there 
It's maybe a 5% solution, and it's mainly designed to hold that sand in suspension because on a two-mile lateral, if I mix sand and water and send it down into a well bore two miles long, that sand's just going to fall out of suspension, and I'm going to have a well bore full of sand. So the chemicals that are used are designed to hold that sand in suspension so it goes out into the formation, and it's left there when the water is pulled back off. So that's why fracking has a, a bad connotation is, is it's really because people don't understand it. Just like many things that we're afraid of, if you don't understand it, it sounds scary, but it's really a simple process. Um, it's the most expensive process of the, the horizontal wells is the completion process where they perforate and they frack the wells. Um, but that's what makes these horizontal wells so successful. The, the government put the, the tax advantages in place in the for oil and gas exploration because it is very risky. If you go out looking for oil, you can have the best geologist in the world and he can be wrong like a weatherman can be wrong. And I've seen it happen. Um, whereas, and so because you're taking that risk as an investor to go out and find and, and promote and build our own you know, US national uh, energy independency, you're taking that risk as an investor in the hopes of finding oil. When you're exploring for oil, you might have a 30% success rate. You can have all the best technology in the world, but mother nature can still throw a wrench in your, in your gears. Where we drill and where we focus now is on these, these field development plays, horizontal drilling only, because it is we will only drill in blanket formations where the oil is proven to be there but those same tax advantages apply because there's still a risk. There's still a mechanical risk. Now, the engineers are brilliant and they've mitigated a lot of those. So we we have a, a tremendous success record because we're not exploring for oil, but we still get all the tax advantages and, and pass those on to our investors. So, so let me ask you a question. So in a, in a typical um, horizontal drilling uh, situation, um, what percentage of the oil comes out year one, year two, year three? Because the wells are fracked, the, the majority, the bulk of the, the, the highest pressures are when you first place the well online. So in a, in a horizontal well, which you will typically see is a production incline reaching a plateau. And this could be, I've seen wells have a six month incline in production. And then they'll plateau for two or three months. So that's your peak production. And from there, from that peak, you will see a decline curve start. And that decline, in some cases, can be precipitous. In other cases, it can be long and gradual. And that's what the, the engineers hope for is a long, gradual decline curve. And at some point, it'll level out and have a nice, consistent production rate for years and years, all under its own pressure. Um, so don't let anyone misguide you. Every single oil well, back to that depletion allowance, in most wells that aren't fracked, you're gonna, your best day of production is going to be that first day of production. When the well is first perforated, that's when the pressures are the greatest. And from that point on, it's going to decline over time. On a, on a horizontal well that has been fracked, that that water weight has to come off the formation that was put into the well to create the microfractures. All of that water weight has to come back off the formation. As that water weight comes off the formation, you'll start to see more and more oil and gas produced. And that that is what drives that incline curve to that 
plateau, and then your decline starts from a peak of production. So uh, that's one of the things that we really like about these wells. The, the bulk of the returns are going to be in the first five to seven years. Uh, the, the major bulk of the returns is going to be in year one and year two. Okay. Um, but that being said, much like real estate, you know, when I design a project, it is, it is designed to get the partners their return on investment, uh, make them whole within two years. If everything works accordingly and oil prices cooperate and the wells cooperate, that's how I design them. But the wells will produce for decades. So in a lot of cases, they become heirloom investments that are paying, you know, the heirs and sometimes grandkids for 20 and 30 years down the road. Uh, so it's a it's a nice way of, of taking a small portion of someone's portfolio, putting it to work for them. That was a lot of it was going to be going to the government anyway, uh, you know, especially our partners who live in California with a high state income tax. Uh, you know, I joke with them, they're working in a lot of cases to mid-July, you know, for the government before they ever start making money for their family. But it's a way of them taking just a portion of that money and putting it to work for them. And and in some cases, seeing revenues go to their grandkids, uh, you know, 20 and 30 years from now. Interesting. So, um, so again, this is something that we're talking about uh, on our CPA show, because um, because of the tax benefits, there are a lot of lot of high net worth, high income taxpayers. Uh, we don't have the passive loss rules that apply. Um, John, you mentioned that they're general partnerships that so that the passive loss rules don't apply. And so we're getting even even somebody who's an employee, um, a high paid employee. You know, we we have the excess business loss limitations, but outside of that. We don't have the same limitations that we would have, say, in real estate um, or other passive investments. And so because of that, we get clients that are asking us all the time. And it's one thing to say, well, yes, you, you know, effectively you get 40% of your money back um, almost, almost day one, 30 to 40% of your money back almost day one but you still have 60% of your money in, invested. Right. So it's very important. And I, I think John, you've explained, obviously you're a huge fan. I mean, that, that comes through loud and clear and that's fine. I mean, that's what we would expect from an oil guy. Um, but we do need to understand that they are still putting in 60%, right? Absolutely. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you don't tell uh, a business owner to go out and buy a truck at the end of the year to get a, a bonus or a 179 deduction on the truck. They're still going to pay 60% of the cost of the truck. So right. you're still you're still risking 60%. As you mentioned, it is a risky investment, which is actually why the government is saying we'll encourage you to do this by mitigating some of that risk. We'll take 40% of the risk off the table, uh, basically uh, day one or day two. And in exchange, you'll put that money into productive use where um, for oil that, that we need rather than buying oil from Venezuela or buying oil from OPEC. That is that is the key. And, and to that point, you know, and again, I'm 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 looking at putting solar panels on my house simply because they're not I live in Texas and they're not building power plants and we've had brownouts, too. And I love I would love to be able to just not have to deal with any of that. So I'm I'm all for all types of power. Um, and I'm all for clean air and clean, clean water and clean ground and, and everything. Um, and if you ever got to get a chance to come up to the field, you'll see that that these these operators really take good care of the environment up there, um, as opposed to, you know, if you, you can see a solar field and it's it's 
it's a pretty big scar that you can see from space, you know, whereas a, 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 a an oil, a pad of 14 oil wells only takes up five acres and it's, it's relatively clean. Um, but to that point, bringing oil in from other countries, when we have it right here, take the electric vehicles off, off the table. You've got your airplanes and your cargo ships. There are just oil freighters. There are approximately 8,000 oil freighters flying the seas at any given moment. And each one of those oil freighters burns anywhere from 30 to 60,000 gallons of fuel oil per day. So you, you start doing that kind of math and, and they've got to come up with some other solutions. So it's not just our transportation, it's getting those Teslas and it's getting those batteries and it's getting everything coming from China and from India and from all over the world that, that, that we use on a daily basis it's got to be put on a boat or some form of transport to get here because we don't make it all here in America. So the again, the more oil we can produce here, we produce it cleaner and better and more efficiently than anywhere else on the planet right here in America. So um, one thing you mentioned, which I think is very important, I, and I, I just like to, to finish talking about this because I actually, I've, I've told clients before and I've, I've been... I went to school in Texas. I went to school at UT. I took oil and gas um, when in my school. I, <laughs> the the school in Texas, yeah. um, UT Austin, and um, and and so I've been involved in the oil and gas industry for my entire career, uh, literally my entire career. Um, so I I I'm a big you know I am a big fan. I will be. I will admit I'm a big fan. I'd love to see you know I love to see it get cleaner and cleaner. But the one thing I find is your industry is full of characters. Let me say, okay. That's the nice way to put it, but how would you talk about just how important is who you deal with? Because in, in real estate, you can see the real estate oil. You don't get to see the oil. So right. you don't know really what's going to happen. You don't really know how good they are. There's no, I mean, I can evaluate a real estate deal. I can go to a a uh, 200 unit apartment complex. And I can see in my own eyes, here's the problems. I mean, it's pretty easy. That's, right. you know, it's going to take me, you know, two, three hours. And I can see that without too much difficulty, right? Oil can't do that. I mean, that is, that is such a special, especially engineering area that really, you'd really have to know so much um, that you'd almost have to be an oil person um, in order to do that. So how do you, how do you, um, determine whether the people you're dealing with, the team you're dealing with is actually legitimate and on the up and up. How, how do you do that? Um, great question. And I'll use myself as an example. I, I grew up in the oil industry in Houston. Uh, I went out on my own and, and went into finance. And when I, when I found this company, the first thing that, that they, they, the first thing out of their mouth was, we're, we're, we drill oil and gas wells and there's risk involved. If we drill a dry hole, we don't make any money because no oil came out of the ground. And before I go through any economics as to why we're drilling these wells, you need to understand the risk. And that was the first thing that, that I thought, okay, this is different. You know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns and we're going to be all millionaire oil tycoons. Um, it, so that was the first thing. So I went to work here coming from a compliance background in the securities industry, and I looked this company up and down, and you've got to do the same thing. Um, we, we, 
we even put out a red flag warning to look out for because there there's there are a lot of legitimate and good companies that do what we do and do things the right way. Um, there's a lot of mom and pop shops that that don't have the financial backing or the financial wherewithal. And those are the ones you kind of have to, you really want to make sure who you're doing business with, not just from a, a good business standpoint. I mean, you can have a great, you know, small operator who does drills shallow wells and, and generates revenues for their partners, not, not knocking them whatsoever. But in the oil industry, things can break and everything that breaks is very expensive. And in some cases, you want to make sure you're doing business with someone who can, who, number one is, is doing business with some of the larger operators. So we, we primarily only work with your, your larger or the biggest names in the field we work with. They, we, we help them drill some of their wells. So, but in the case of a smaller operator on a smaller rig, things can break and things can get expensive really fast. And so you just want to do your due diligence. I mean, there's really, um, one of the things I do is from time to time, you know, two or three times a year, I will invite our partners to come up and look at some of the wells because very much like real estate, there's no better way of seeing your money go to work for you than watching an oil well being drilled. And because like I said, they do, they come in and they build a small city around a bunch of holes in the ground until those wells start producing oil. So that's the ultimate uh, way of checking them out. And not every operator is going to say, you know, okay, Mr. Tire Kicker, I'm, I'm, I understand you want to do your due diligence. They're not going to put you on a plane and fly you out to see one of their oil wells. You're going to have to do a little bit of that due diligence on your own. Uh, Better Business Bureau is a, you know, that's one of the easiest ways to check out a company just for, for the sake of ease. Um, checking them out, making sure they have good reviews, that they do business the right way, um, and, and then go from there. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can, most companies will provide you with financials or, you know, some, some, you know, they're, they're done in Bradstreet reports. Just make sure you're doing with uh, most secretaries of state, like we're based in Texas, uh, the Texas secretary of state, uh, you know, we're a, a legitimate business, you know, so I mean, we have offices in Boise, Idaho here in, in Dallas, Texas. So just buyer beware, just like any investment, you know, make sure you're, you're, uh, you're, you at least have some warm and fuzzies about who you're doing business with. Well, I, I, I think it's particularly important in oil and gas uh, business, just because um, I do think there are people who are um, who will fake it. Mm -hmm. and they will absolutely fake it. I've seen it. And like you say, you can, uh, I've actually had experiences where you absolutely know the oil there is there and you can't get to the oil. Yep. So there are, there are lots of risks. And so what, when we talk to our clients, on the one hand, we need to be careful not to um, say no, um, just because we don't understand it. Um, because it is a team sport. Remember, investing is always a team sport. So we need to make sure that we understand what's going on. In if, if our clients are coming to us on with an oil and gas investment, we need to understand the oil and gas industry. We need to understand that, yes, we our job is primarily to explain the tax effects. But I think our clients are looking for a little bit more than that and a little bit understanding of, okay, how does this investment work? Um, and 
while we're not the ones who are evaluating the investment for them, typically, um, we can, we should be able to read that operating agreement. We should be able to read that offering memorandum and say, this is what the deal is. Um, we've got some of this money, you know, goes to the, the royalty owners. They get this percentage off the top. Um, which I know is a very big range, depending on where you're drilling. Right. Um, it, it can go up to 25%, right? 20, 28% in some parts. 28%. Of it's 28%. Right. And that's right off the top. So you're getting you're getting the leftover and you're paying all the costs of developing. And so you, you do need to understand what is going on um, because you're, you know, it's one thing to say, I know what a truck is and and you you know what the risks are buying your truck. All right. Oil and, oil and gas is a little bit different animal. It's a little more sophisticated investment. Um, typically, I, I, I think most oil and gas drillers are syndicators. And so they're, you're talking about accredited investors. And basically, all, all the an accredited investor means is that you can afford to lose the money. That's right. really all that means. Doesn't mean that your clients know any more than anybody else. It just means that the government has determined that they have enough money that if they lose money, it's okay. And, and so I think that's important to recognize also. I'm, right. I'm glad, John, that you guys, you know, put out those red flags. You know, you could lose everything. Just know that you could lose everything. We, I would just we, encourage we, you, don't, don't, don't let, don't, don't scare away your investor, your client, because you don't understand it. Rather, right. help to understand that, find people who do understand it, get get a good team in place. If they are going to do it, make sure that they do understand what they're getting into. Right. And to those points, we we only we only work with accredited investors for those specific reasons. Um, not just from a from a obviously from a tax standpoint, if they've got to make enough money that they can fully utilize those all the tax advantages that are available to them. Uh, from the same point, you know, someone who who is a retired person that may not need all the tax advantages, um, they may be looking to supplement their income in retirement. Um, but one more thing on the on the front of, of checking out who you're doing business with. In almost every case, if you're going to be participating in an oil well, one of the easiest things to find out is every oil well, if it's permitted, is going to have an API number. So that's like the the address uh, of a piece of real estate or the or the deed. Uh, they're going to have an API number. They'll typically have a plat so that you can look and say, okay, this is a legitimate well that these people are drilling. They're a working interest partner through through the various agreements. It, it should be easy for that, that promoter or whoever's uh, sending this project to your client for them to prove that, that they are a part of this well and not just some fly-by-night, you know, working in a basement in Nigeria. Uh, company. So just there are ways of, of verifying it and it should be pretty easy for any company that you're, you know, if, if it's not easy for them, your, your, your antenna should be on high alert. Awesome. Thank you so much. And John, where could we get more information about what you guys do? Um, we're easy to find on the web, uh, just www.gulfcoastwestern.com. It's literally almost every letter in the alphabet, but uh, it's our company name. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of information, a lot of uh, informative videos. Um, beyond that, if you're if you're interested, you can submit through our website uh, request for more information, and we'll be happy to work with you and get you anything you need. Awesome! Thank you so much, John, for joining us, and and thank you um, everybody who's joined us today. On I think. I think when we're talking to our clients, we've got to understand not just the tax side of things, but we need to understand what they're getting into, not because we're advising them, 
whether or not to get into it, but because we need to have a general understanding so that we can help them find good partners. They can find, um, they, they can know what they're looking for. We don't have to be the experts. We have to be the tax experts, um, but we can have people around us and people we know who do have um, that kind of information. And that's why we bring these type of people, people like John, um, to you so that you can get more information should your clients inquire. Uh, I think that when we do this, when we're really doing the things the government has said they want us to do, such as invest in oil and gas, that's a clear indication when you get those big tax benefits that the government is saying, you do this, we'll give you a tax benefit because we know that we need the energy in the U.S. Um, and we may not need it forever. Uh, we may not need all of it forever, but we certainly need it now. And when we do that, we're always going to end up with better clients and a better practice and a better life. We'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the WealthAbility for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.